0: In, in our context in Kashmir, we have suffered uh, not just in last 20 years uh, since the eruption of armed resistance against the Indian occupation. We have suffered much before even from 1931, then in 1947, then again in 53, 65. So many times we have suffered. Thousands of people have laid their lives and were killed, assaulted, arrested, exiled. Kashmiris are dying and they are dying very silently because the world prefers to not hear them.
1: That's Khuram Pervez and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Khuram Pervez on Kashmir, telling the story. Khuram Pervez is a Kashmiri human rights activist. He's the program coordinator of the Jammu and Kashmir Coalition of Civil Society. He has been jailed by the Indian government since November 2021, joining many other Kashmiris behind bars. Time named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world, calling him a modern-day David. Arundhati Roy calls him one of the most remarkable people that I know. He and the organization he works for have for years meticulously documented the saga of torture, enforced disappearances, and death visited upon the people of Kashmir. Tens of thousands have been killed. Thousands have just disappeared. I interviewed Khuram Parvez in Srinagar, Kashmir in February 2011. When I returned to India that September to follow up on reporting on the mass graves in Kashmir, I was denied entry by the Indian government. I've been banned from India ever since. Sadly, this interview is all too relevant. Since August 2019, the Hindu nationalist regime ruling India has imposed even harsher conditions on Kashmiris and eliminated what little autonomy they had. This story needs to be told, but the G20 won't hear it. Its tourism officials are visiting Kashmir in late May in what will be an orchestrated photo op extolling the valley's natural beauties and comparing Kashmir to paradise. Kashmir is off the media radar screen. India has carefully controlled the narrative. Khurram Parvez, though, cuts through Delhi's propaganda.
0: Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me here.
2: Buried Evidence was a, a document that, that was produced um, in 2009, and it... it uh, documents the violence of militarization Indian administered Kashmir uh, and in particular it uh, discovered these mass graves uh, across 55 villages in Bandepura, Baramula and Kupwara districts uh, of uh, Kashmir. Uh, talk about this report and uh, why was it done and, and what prompted it?
0: Uh, actually we started working on this uh, uh, from 2006 onwards, uh, in in 2005 there was a major earthquake in in Kashmir, in in Pakistani administered Kashmir and on the Indian administered side as well. Uh, on the Indian administered side, it, it the earthquake struck at the places which are on the line of control, the the de facto border. So these are areas, uh, huge areas, almost 45 kilometers in stretch, where we had no access from last so many years, 50 years, 60 years. We were not able to go there. And in last 20 years, what had happened there how many people have been killed there, or how, how many people were caught and arrested while crossing over to the Pakistani side of the Kashmir for acquiring arms training. No one knew what had happened there. So this was for the first time when earthquakes struck. We had an opening to visit these places for humanitarian intervention. We as local organizations organized ourselves and made a platform of all the local organizations and went there. I was coordinating that, and one of my colleagues, Parvez Imros, was with us. So he was also, because of being a human rights activist, more interested in human rights work than in humanitarian relief work. So he was asking questions, I was asking questions to people, and, and these graveyards were identified to us by locals there. And they told us, look, there are so many unidentified people who are buried here. These unidentified graves even existed in our own localities here in Srinagar or elsewhere in uh, Jammu and Kashmir. But they started making meaning to us when we saw them at at such a mass level in uh, Udi's sub-district. We found out that there are uh, hundreds of graveyards there, but a lot of graveyards had named, marked graveyards. These were unmarked graveyards. We started investigating and found out that some of the cases which we ourselves were dealing about the disappeared persons. Uh, there was a very infamous case of triple murder, where three uh, people were murdered by a police officer called Rashid Billah. He was responsible for killing them. And after killing them, he had buried two of them in one of the villages in Udi area, the place where we had visited. So this actually gave us idea that there might be many people who have been abducted from Srinagar, Baramulla, Kupwara, Islamabad and other places and buried in some other grave because then it becomes very easier for them to claim them as unidentified people or even sometimes, most of the times actually, foreign militants. They are They are killing these people in fake encounters and claiming them as foreign militants. So that's when we started the research. And on behalf of one of our member organizations, which is Association of Parents of Disappeared Persons, we carried out a brief preliminary report called Facts Underground. This report was released in uh, March uh, uh, 2008. Immediately after that report, we started having huge surveillance issues. We started having intimidation efforts from government side. Uh, In that report, we had only mentioned about 940 unidentified bodies. Of, uh, which existed in Uri sub-district. But since then, we carried out a detailed research and in which some of the friends like Gautam Navlaka, Angana Chatterjee, and many other friends came, and they helped us investigate uh, in, in not just only in the o- sub-district of Uri, uh, but also in Baramulla and then also in Kupwara and Bandipura. And we figured out that there are 2,700 unidentified graves in in these three districts, at least those which we were able to find. And in these 2,700 graves, there are 2,943 men buried. You're part of the Coalition of Civil Society. Uh, What is it exactly, and how do you operate? Jammu and Kashmir Coalition of Civil Society came into existence in June uh, 2000. But before that, we were... Individuals, small organizations like Association of Parents of Disappeared Persons, Public Commission on Human Rights. I then was part of Students Helpline, a students group, and many other groups. We all came together because we were a small group with very little resources, with very little human resources. Um, so we came together and formed this coalition, which is an umbrella of 10 different human rights and uh, civil society organizations. It has a women's organization. It has an organization called Association of Parents of Disappeared Persons, which essentially is not a human rights organization. It's, it's an organization of the family members of the disappeared. And then we have organizations from remote areas like Doda and Punj. And then we have some small organizations which are of the ex-militants who are no more militants now but are being regularly harassed for their past. And their families are being harassed for their past. So uh, it's basically now an umbrella, which is working together and pooling resources.
2: As this is one of the most militarized zones uh, in the world, is your work monitored? For example,
0: is your, are your phones tapped? Is your email uh, surveilled? Uh, the militarization which has happened here, visibly it is 700,000 troops. But there are so many invisible things which we always uh, are not successful in telling to the world that what militarization has meant in our lives. Every small thing in Kashmir is monitored. I mean, the work which I've done from last 12 years being a human rights activist, uh, I I would have forgotten a lot of things. But the file which they have maintained in the interrogation centers and uh, intelligence uh, bureaus it's complete. They can give me the information of what I have done on which day. They, they tell us sometimes when they meet us or asking questions that you met such and such person on such and such date. We would have forgotten. I mean, but they keep a record for us. Their surveillance is so detailed that our emails, our phone calls, our uh, phone numbers of my wife, my other family members are also monitored. I may use them. Not even mine. So a a lot of people here have voice trackers. Their voices are being tracked on any mobile which they use. Uh, Then our emails are monitored. Then sometimes when we are doing some significant work, investigations in some areas, so there is a bumper-to-bumper surveillance. They make it visible to us and make make us feel that that we should know that that we are being monitored. I am reminded of some of the films which I have seen in my childhood about the German surveillance during the Nazi era. I don't think that it would be an exaggeration. It's, it's, it's much worse than that. It's much worse than that, the kind of surveillance, because the world has moved on since then. Surveillance techniques have improved. You say that uh, we want
2: to be storytellers, that we will write our own history. We will not allow the past to be forgotten. Uh, talk about the importance of keeping memory and history alive.
0: Uh, in, in our context in Kashmir, uh, we have suffered uh, not just in the last 20 years uh, since the eruption of armed uh, resistance against the Indian occupation. We have suffered much before even, from 1931, uh, then in 1947, then again in 53, 65. So many times we have suffered. Thousands of people have laid their lives and were killed, assaulted, arrested, exiled, But unfortunately, if you hear Kashmiris talking about movement, they would talk about movement from 1989, as if it started 1989. But it started actually exactly from the day when India came inside Kashmir, on 27th of October 1947. But the problem is that we were not able to retain the memory of of these events. Like, for example, on the day when India arrived in Kashmir, on 27th of October 1947, on the same day some of the political people here were welcoming them. They had kept a welcome uh, procession was there. Even the Indian army was so styled to them, these people who were welcoming Indian army inside Kashmir to save them from the tribal raiders of Pakistan, they were shot, people who were welcoming them. Five people were shot and, and five people died on the spot and many, many hundreds were injured. So this is not something which a lot of people remember. Then in '53, some of the leaders who were arrested, 1,500 people were killed, according to the conservative estimates. But this is not something which is part of our collective memory. This has to be investigated and researched. And we, as Kashmiris, feel that there is a disconnect with our past, the struggle which has been offered by the Kashmiri people in the past. There's a disconnect today. Because not many people know what has happened because it was not documented. The past has not been documented. So what we are trying to do now is we are trying to document our present so that we, we are kind of uh, historians of the present. We are writing the history for our future generations so that they know what we have gone through and why it is not possible for us to, to compromise and to surrender. Why is it important for the for our future generations to remember this? Because... What has happened here, the injustices uh, which have happened here, if it is forgotten, they would be repeated on our future generations. But if it is remembered, we will try that these are not repeated and, and never again should they be repeated. The kind of work which we are doing is not only human rights documentation. We are also documenting the lives of those who have remained unsung, the heroic work which they have done and has remained unsung. So we are trying to document their lives as well. So that there is an inspiration for our future generations and present generation. They have some inspirational uh, lives which they can look up to and carry forward the struggle against injustice here in Kashmir. We believe that memory is the most important tool which the oppressed people have. It's the biggest weapon which the oppressed people have. Oppressors would, would want us to have amnesia where we forget everything. For us, the only weapon... And the only potent weapon which I feel we have as weak and oppressed people is memory. Our memory will always help us to to sustain the struggle against injustice. Talk about the difficulties in
2: telling the Kashmir story to Indians as well as the
0: international audience. It has been very difficult for us when we document human rights abuses here, which has almost turned into like war crimes because the, the proportion of these crimes and the, the, the way they are being systematically uh, inflicted on the people. The world does not want to hear this because they feel that India is a democratic country. How can a democracy do this? And then uh, the other is the image of India, which is an, a country of secularism, nonviolence, a country of Gandhi. and And for us, we have to convince the world that these people who are ruling us, India, they're not mini-Gandhis. They're perceived to be mini-Gandhis. I mean, billions of Gandhis living here who are symbols of tolerance and who are symbols of non-violence. But India in Kashmir, not just in Kashmir, but also in other parts of uh, India, there are struggles for justice, social justice, where there are struggles for secession. Uh, India has been the same there. But unfortunately, world has not paid attention to what India has done because there are prejudices in the minds of people in west we happen to be people who are muslims so there is a prejudice that uh, how can how that these are muslims so there might be something they are doing wrong they are violent uh, india's violence is not at all uh, paid attention to even smallest things uh, uh, the attacks by the guerrilla groups here are carried internationally international newspapers pay a lot of attention to that Uh, The violence of the Indian government, which has resulted in the killing of 70,000 people, uh, does not make much sense to the people in the U.S. And also the other liability which we have is that on the other side, the image of Pakistan, which a lot of people, uh, because of other geopolitical issues, they, they feel Pakistan is a violent country. And if Pakistan is supporting the cause of Kashmir, then it must not be right. So, Pakistan's image also is a liability, and today's Pakistan's image is a liability, and also the image of India, which is of secularism, tolerance, non violence, I mean, of course, which is all facade for us. But uh, it, it has become a major issue for us to convince the world opinion that it's not what they, they, they are trying to claim. They are entirely uh, responsible, and monop- they have monopolized the violence, they have monopolized the Information also, they have monopolized the lies here. India ha- has learned successfully the art of lying and the art of inflicting violence on the people and blaming the people for the, the very same people for the violence.
2: Now, of the seventy thousand who have been killed
0: since nineteen eighty nine, what proportion of that figure is civilian? Almost more than fifty percent would be civilians only. Uh, rest of them are militants, counterinsurgents, political activists and uh, also uh, uh, soldiers from the uh, jammu and kashmir police and um, other paramilitary groups uh, which who are fighting here for india so more than 50% would be civilians alone tell me about the 8 to 10000 who have disappeared yeah, in in last two decades uh, uh, what has happened is that army uh, and different uh, armed forces groups used to abduct people, arrest people. And during interrogation, either they would die or they would be buried, or God knows what has happened to them. So more than 8,000 people have uh, been subjected to enforced disappearances. And the government still lives in in a mode of deniability still. They say that we don't know what happened to these people. They were not arrested. So this is propaganda. But we have documented the lives of these families whose lives are shattered because of the disappearance of their loved ones. And they are commemorating, they are every time protesting. Every month you would see there's a there's a protest organized by us, by the family members of the disappeared. So they ca- their tears can't be lies. Uh, their sobs can't be lies. They, they, they are crying every month, every day. So uh, this is something which has to be paid attention to. I mean... We understand that India has reasons not to acknowledge the crimes which they have perpetrated. But we don't understand what is the reason for the non-involvement of the international community, which seems to be so attracted to what happens in Darfur, which seems to be so attracted what happens in East Timor, which seems to be so attracted what happens in Iran, or now even in uh, South China and many other places. They, they are so interested in Tibet. Our lives are no different. We also are humans. Kashmiris are dying and they are dying very silently because the world prefers to not hear them. This not hearing for us is, is is some kind of hypocrisy from the those who claim to be champions of human rights. This is understood for us that the world has concerns for terrorism. We even have concerns for terrorism. But terrorism... In, in this part of the world, in Kashmir, is monopolized by the Indian state. Why would there be no concern from those people who are concerned about violence in the world, who are concerned about sufferings in the world? There are international organizations who prefer not to write much about Kashmir, but they would be repeatedly writing about the crisis which might unfold in Kosovo. I mean, at present, Kosovo is peaceful. There are international groups which, which would write a report that if this conflict is not solved, it would result into a mayhem. But this is speculation. Here, it is resulting into mayhem every day, and there's no international attention.
2: Well, India has conflated resistance to its
0: occupation in, in Kashmir with terrorism. From last two decades, uh, Kashmiris have used violence uh, as a means to protest the Indian occupation. But even before, if you see, uh, there were no there was, there was no violence used by the Kashmiri people. Kashmiris were entirely non-violent, even participated in elections, thinking that elections might be one of the ways through which they could resolve the Kashmir conflict. But India, uh, from last 63 years, has used dialogue as an end in itself. They, also, India has a history of non-negotiating. With any of the conflicts in the, in India, any of the conflicts, whether it's Manipur, whether it's Nagaland, whether it's Punjabi, whether it's Dalit rights, whether it's even women's issues, India has not negotiated with any of the group. So why would it negotiate with Kashmir? It, it, it is very easier for them to, to internationally propagate that what is going on in Kashmir is terrorism because there is an international prejudice after 9-11 about, Muslim struggles, struggles for right of self-determination. Uh, so India has very successfully carried out a campaign saying that Kashmir is terrorism. But if you see from last three years, 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, Kashmiris have made a huge shift from violence to non-violence. This is probably one of the most significant things which has happened in Kashmir in the last three years, where a, a movement has had a transition from violence to non-violence. Normally there are transitions from non-violence to violence. Here we have a transition from violence to non-violence. And this also does not attract international opinion. It's not very easy for any any society to have a shift from violence to non-violence. And we have successfully had a shift in which, in 2008, we had more than a million, million people out on streets. And, and then also in 2010, protests... There was a lot of hue and cry in India. But what happened? How has India reacted to this? How has India responded to this? Again, by violence. And that violence is not, again, something which is acknowledged by uh, international opinion makers. Uh, There are very few who would want to visit Kashmir. There are very few who would want to uh, organize a a solidarity group like International Solidarity Movement for Palestine. It seems that uh, Palestine affects the entire European population. Uh, there, are, there are thousands of groups and NGOs and individuals writing reports, books, everything, every day. Uh, there are hardly few people in West who write about Kashmir. But we can't wait for them. We can't wait for them because it is our lives, it is our homes, it is our future. So what we have decided and what we are doing is that we are becoming storytellers for ourselves. We are documenting our stories ourselves. We don't know when the West will wake up. We don't know when. Even East, the Muslim countries, uh, there is is no support from the Muslim countries also, the 55 Muslim countries in the world. So we don't know when they will wake up. What we are trying to do is we are trying to document each and everything, whatever is possible, through our little meager resources, through our little whatever capabilities we have. We are documenting everything and, and, and... Uh, Whatever we are documenting, we don't think that it is only uh, going to be indicting for the Indian civil society, which of course is non-involved in the struggle for justice in Kashmir. It is an indictment for them, but it is also an indictment for those internationally who are silent on Kashmir. I don't know how they'll justify being silent on Kashmir. There are international conscientious objectors who have been speaking about Palestine, about Iraq, about Afghanistan, from Nelson Mandela to Noam Chomsky, to, to so many people. But there are hardly few who have spoken about Kashmir.
2: You make a distinction between human rights violations and war crimes. Uh, what do you see uh, the practices of the Indian state in in
0: Kashmir as constituting? In in last uh, 20 years, uh, the kind of... Human rights abuses, which you have seen, they are institutional, they are systematic, and uh, it's an institutional and systematic repression from the state. It's an official policy to repress people, and yeah. the the rate and the, uh, the the rate at which these human rights abuses have taken place, it is not possible if there is no official acquiescence. Uh, And uh, we we believe that if it is an institutional policy to repress people and that too when 70,000 people have died, 8,000 more than 8,000 people have disappeared, thousands of women have been raped, uh, when it's an institutional policy of the government and not of the individuals who are part of the state, then of course for us it's a war crime committed against a people who are demanding the right of self-determination. The Indian state is at war with the people of kashmir because kashmiri people are demanding their right uh, their dignity uh, the restoration of their dignity and the and the right to right to self determination so a war has been unleashed on the people of kashmir because they have been demanding the right of self determination technically a lot of people would tell us that it's not war crimes because uh, states are not fighting here but we are a people who, on whom a war has been imposed by the Indian state. Violence has been imposed on us. We are all at war, and the Kashmiri people are at war with Indian state, Indian state apparatus. So that makes us say that it's war crimes going on.
2: Uh, talk about the vulnerability of women in a, in a militarized zone, and uh, the difficulty, in, uh, p- particularly in a traditional uh, Islamic culture, of women coming forward and reporting on uh,
0: rapes. Uh, if, if you see in last two decades, we have had a lot of rape and molestation cases. This is a place where when you're raped, the Indian state apparatus and then those in Indian civil society who support the government line come here to rescue the government. And while doing so, they make us appear as liars who would lie to the world that we have been raped, who would lie to the world that we have uh, loved ones in our family who have been disappeared or who has been killed in custody. There's no justice. Because of these cases where the, the, the women do not get justice, uh, what has happened significantly is that women do not even report molestation and rapes. Because what happens is that it is very uh, emotional thing when uh, a women, uh, women are raped in our society What happens, people come out, protest against it. And in these protest demonstrations, government is ruthless every time. They shoot people, they kill people. Hundreds of people have lost their lives in these protest demonstrations in in, in just last three years. And uh, it it is very difficult for these women to imagine that after losing their honor, um, when they are being raped and molested, more people have to die for seeking justice. So that has discouraged them from reporting. But they have internalized now this repression in a different way. Like in our society, veil is becoming more prominent in the rural areas where you have camps, army camps, these concentration camps. You would see the number of women wearing veil now has increased as compared to last 20, before 20 years. And then also the issue is that in, in some remote areas, women have uh, after a certain age, they drop out from the school. So their education is also getting affected because they feel that they are no more secure if they go out of the village because schools are far away, not necessarily in the village itself, and they would be stopped by army. They're not safe. And and, and in this kind of uncertain and and insecure atmosphere, nobody is secure, whether women or men. So they don't want to take the risk of getting emancipated but at the cost of their own lives or at the cost of their honor. So it, it is certainly affecting uh, the, the, uh, the mindset of our women, uh, their, their insecurity, and also it is adding to a different kind of depression. Uh, if you speak to our doctors here, psychiatrists here, they would tell you that half of the Kashmiri population has some one or the other kind of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, it is because of this atmosphere of fear it is because of the trauma which they have seen which they have witnessed uh, in their uh, villages in their families with their uh, loved ones so, uh, and the number of women who are affected by this post-traumatic stress disorder is far more than men their numbers are more so it is it has certainly discouraged women from coming forward in, in, in a public life uh, where they could be shoulder-to-shoulder uh, sh- shoulder fighting for the struggle for justice. But here it seems that uh, they are very discouraged because of the culture of impunity and culture of fear.
1: You're listening to khurram Pervez on Kashmir Telling the Story. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. That's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven, Or go online, website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org.
2: As I travel around uh, Kashmir, I see a, a network of army camps, interrogation centers, bunkers, watchtowers, command posts, uh, and roadblocks. And more than one Kashmiri has told me uh, this place is like a jail.
0: Yes, people who come from outside, for them this is very unusual, the kind of militarization which you see. I mean, I would tell you that uh, our younger children here, when they go to any other place outside Kashmir, uh, they would, three-year-old, four-year-old, the first thing they would tell you uh, about places like Delhi or any other place where they visit, they would tell you, this is beautiful, and but there is something missing in the landscape. That's army. It's so much in our minds. They have, the militarization is so deep here and and, I mean, uh, so widespread that younger children, when they go outside, they miss them, miss them in the sense that they feel that there's something odd in this society. Why do they not have army camps? Three-year-old, four-year-old babies, when they go to Delhi and other places, they would tell you. They mean so much to us now in a very negative way. But uh, like, for example, these army camps, these bunkers, they have become our landmarks also. we, If we have to give an address to someone about our office, like, for example, we tell them that you have to come to the city center and there is this bunker, just stop at the bunker. This bunker has become a landmark, unfortunately. I mean, we, we have become so immune to it that we cannot see them. We don't want to see them, but they are there. And the, anyone who comes from outside, for them this is a horrible picture of militarization. Kashmiris who go out and when they return back, that is when they realize that how bad it is, how it is affecting our psyche, how it, it is affecting our uh, behaviors. Th- this has affected our behaviors. Our behaviors are changing because of this kind of militarization. few years back, we were not people who would react violently to incidents. Now we do. This summer, if you see, there are so many instances where children, when they were killed by armed forces, People reacted by burning and setting ablaze the government property. Summer of 2010. Yeah, summer of 2010. The army camps, uh, police stations, people who were responsible for killing children there, they were set ablaze because this is the height of the frustration amongst the younger people. They cannot take it anymore. They, they are repeatedly saying to us when we meet people at the grassroots level, they tell us that this is enough. we We can't bear any more pain. This is already too much for us. And they are reacting now in a very violent manner as well, setting ablaze, like, for example, they are unarmed protesters. They don't know what they are doing. They they set ablaze uh, uh, an army camp. I mean, unimaginable. These army men who there, they have guns and they will fire them. They know that they will be, get killed, but they they feel that they need to do this because... Otherwise, also they'll get killed. Otherwise, also they get humiliated every day. So uh, they don't want to live a life of humiliation every day.
2: I saw for myself in a village in Baramulla district, uh, an SOG, a uh, special operations group building that had been burned.
0: Yeah, it uh, uh, it was in the Creedy village, uh, the place which you mentioned. Uh, where the SOG camp, the special operations group uh, of the JNK police, their camp was set ablaze because they were responsible for shooting directly on uh, the protesters uh, without any provocation, without any warning. They shot directly on the protesters. Uh, uh, two protesters got killed, and then after that, uh, the entire village, the entire locality was. Uh, angry and they came out on streets and protested and the only thing they could imagine doing was setting ablaze this army camp, uh, this SOG camp. The, that was the only thing they could do. They they feel satisfied in a way, of course that's, that's unfortunate. They feel satisfied that they have taken the revenge of the killings, uh, that they were not silent and they feel that at least this time they, by doing this, they have given uh, an understanding to the government and army that we will not tolerate any killing. So they are giving a very clear-cut signal to the government that you cannot kill us anymore, so we will not let you kill. So by these things, this is an unfortunate way in which we have to make our oppressors believe that we will not tolerate. But uh, that that was the motive there. If you talk to the community, that was the motive. They believe that they have to now come out all... uh, 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 shedding their fear and scare, and they have to uh, f- uh, retaliate to any killing. And the only retaliation they can do is come out on the streets in the in, in hundreds and confront the army and chase, challenge them to kill them. Um, that's what they do every time now.
2: And there seems to be a sectarian component to the struggle in Kashmir as well. India is officially a secular state. Uh, But as I go around and look at these bunkers and watchtowers and and army camps, you know, I see uh, evidence of Hindu uh, religious identities, slogans, uh, iconography, and even uh, temples.
0: Yeah. Uh, Wherever you find these camps, which have erupted in the last two decades, you would find every camp has, uh, every bunker has an, a new b- small building there, which is a a, a temple, a Hindu temple. So, uh, in, Indian army does, has not behaved like a secular army. They they are creating more temples and also the symbols everywhere which are used, like Jaya Bhavani or... The, these are names of gods, uh, of Hindus, Hinduism. which normally people here do not identify with, but the Indian Army does. And, and what is the reason? I mean, why would at all the Indian Army inscribe these slogans or these religious texts on the walls or create temples? Why would they do it? And people here feel scared of this because they have heard the stories of how settlers started settling in the Palestine and how it changed the demography. The, the, these are things which scare people. They feel that uh, they can continue fighting the Indian government and they will, but uh, the government of India is, uh, and, and some Hindutva voices in India are hell-bent on changing the demography of Kashmir. They have been saying it very publicly, the Indian Hindutva uh, groups, that the only solution to Kashmir is change its demography. Uh, You need to have more Hindus living there. So these army uh, installations, wherever they are, when they make these bunkers or temples or other places, this is exactly what scares them. They do not see that this army is here to confront the militants, the armed militants. They see them as people who are coming here to occupy their lands, but with occupation they bring a different culture as well. They bring uh, a, a, a different religion as well talk more about the the face of the occupation
2: who are who are the military and paramilitary and uh, have you any contact with them other uh, than at checkpoints you know has there been any outreach have you talked
0: to them the indian army and the indian paramilitary groups they do not believe in dialogue that's not what they are looking for they do not look for interactions with people in terms of uh, engagement where people could question them people could tell them that this is what they are doing wrong Officially, um, at the level, at the political level, they invite Kashmiris every time for a dialogue, which I told you earlier that it, 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 it is organized in such a way that it, it is an end in itself, the dialogue. It has become an institution in itself for the end in itself. Uh, but here on ground, the, the government of India, its troops present here, do not believe in dialogue. They, they do not believe in talking to the people and in listening to the grievances of the people where – the armed forces commit atrocities. Because for them every Kashmiri is a liar. For them every Kashmiri is a propagandist. For them every Kashmiri is a potential terrorist. I'm 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 not sure whether you've seen in some of the camps, army camps here, they they, they write a slogan saying that respect all and suspect all. I mean when do you write suspect all? When you do not trust anyone. I mean that's exactly what they believe here. They do not trust anyone here. For them every Kashmiri is a potential terrorist and who is against the Indian occupation here. The Indian army which is present at the local level in different villages here come from different backgrounds. They are Dalits, they are southern Indian people, they are people from Nagaland Manipur, Assam these are people who are otherwise also oppressed in their own lands wherever they come from. So these oppressed people come here to oppress the other I mean, Kashmiri. India has been very successful in using, uh, like Kashmiri soldiers are being sent to Nagaland to oppress people there, or Assam or other places, or Chhattisgarh, and uh, they are being sent to this place. So uh, they are successfully carrying forward and religiously carrying forward the, the British concept of divide and rule. So it's the colonial heritage which they have, which they have inherited from the British uh, colonial past they continue it they they believe that they have they can carry forward and continue and sustain what the india is today only by divide and rule and they have till now succeeded
2: you suggested one of the reasons that uh, the international community for want of a better term uh, is not attracted to the struggle in kashmir is that this is a majority Muslim area. But I would, I would uh, challenge you on that uh, with the example of Bosnia, which was also a majority Muslim area, which drew a tremendous amount of attention.
0: How do you explain the difference? Yeah, Bosnia is so close to Europe. I mean, that proximity with Europe actually was the reason for the Europeans to get involved in Bosnia, because it, it was happening in their backyard, And they didn't want to have have any any such conflict in their backyard, which could affect their lives tomorrow. Kashmir, they feel, is very far from Europe, very far from U.S., will not have much of an impact on their lives directly. But also the other factor is that India, uh, the image of India, India is seen as the uh, mystic place by most of the Europeans and Americans. Uh, India is seen as a country of Gandhi. India is incredible. What they say, Then also, uh, the other thing is that the Western governments feel very close to India. Uh, India is their strategic, strategic partners, partner, as
2: Obama has called it.
0: Yeah, yeah but uh, uh, India, uh, that's what Obama says, strategic partner. But Indians would sell them that they are their natural partners, uh, which is one step higher than a strategic partner. They are getting closer to each other, and that is one of the reasons why American population or European population does not feel connected to Kashmir because there is official and uh, uh, the the corporate interest in India. The the corporates are making the efforts to present India's image as a shining India. This shining India, uh, the image is sold to the whole world, that India's economy is doing so great. Every year, uh, there are 2,500,000 Indians who die because of hunger. So, this is the shining in India or incredible India. Now, there are 250,000 Indians? Um, 2,500,000 Indians, which is uh, 7,000 Indians every day die because of hunger. 7,000 Indians die because of hunger every day in India. This is the incredible India. There are uh, 160 districts of India where there's armed conflict going on. This is the incredible India. I mean, we have 700,000 troops present in Kashmir. This is incredible India. This, This side of India is not presented to the Americans or not presented to the Europeans because of the corporate interests, because of the strategic interests of the governments with India. Because they see India as a partner in this region, as a competitor against China. They want to promote India against China. What keeps New Delhi
2: here with that huge military force occupying a population that doesn't want to be uh, occupied. Is it just about power and the exercise of power and sovereignty over another people? Or is there some uh, urgent economic
0: interest? Indians would want Kashmiris to believe uh, the argument which they give every time is that how can you live as a free country? You need India. You need support from India. But I would argue because it is India which needs Kashmir more than Kashmiris needing India. India says... uh, what will happen to the Muslims of India if Kashmir secedes? The uh, there are there's a huge 15% to 16% population of India which is Muslim, so they feel threatened that uh, they, they would become insecure in India, and uh, the Hindu groups would backlash and and retaliate on uh, the Muslims in India. One, and then the other thing is that the economic potential which Kashmir has, the hydroelectric power which Kashmir produces. Almost 80 percent of our electricity, which we produce here, goes to India. Uh, it's it's huge electricity, and it's it almost contributes to 30 to 40 percent of the electricity for the entire northern India. It would be energy crisis for India, the shining India, which is growing, the the industrial India, which is growing. Uh, their, their growth would just get directly affected if Kashmir is not part of India, because. Their energy needs are satisfied by the uh, hydroelectric power which is produced in Kashmir.
2: And Kashmir is also the source of many great rivers, so you have water resources.
0: We have water resources in abundance. We have so many glaciers and also the strategic location of Kashmir. It is a gateway to the entire Central Asia. This gives an advantage to India uh, vis-à-vis Pakistan. So uh, that's one. Uh, that's the other reason why Kash- India wants to keep Kashmir.
2: How does a resistance movement morally
0: isolate its oppressor? Well, it's very difficult, and it's something which we have, uh, which we are struggling, which we are trying to do. I, and I think that uh, what we have tried to do is we are highlighting the contradictions of the Indian state, uh, the contradictions in what they say and what they do. We may not have succeeded to a large extent, but we're trying our level best to make people here and internationally aware of the lies which Indian government is engaged in Kashmir. Because what it says to us uh, in Kashmir is that you have to be with us no matter what. We will keep you with us. The situation is under control. That's what exactly the Indian prime minister said a day before but internationally it says that it is willing to negotiate uh, it is uh, it has offered uh, talks to the people of kashmir but locally it says situation is under control they will they'll keep people under control uh, they they will keep on controlling our lives they will keep on controlling our future they'll keep on controlling our present That's what it says to us locally here in Kashmir. But Internationally they would every time tell us that we are ready to talk with Pakistan, we are ready to talk with the Kashmiri leadership, but they are willing to talk with the people of Kashmir only to talk because talks in itself are an end. Uh, They do not want to negotiate. These these talks are not meant for negotiations uh, because One of the conditions from the Kashmiri side is that any talks could begin if India is willing to concede that Kashmir is disputed. At the moment, India does not publicly say that Kashmir is a disputed region. India says very loudly and very clearly, repeatedly, that Kashmir is an integral part of India. Well, they don't really care about Kashmiris. They have been saying Kashmir is integral part, not Kashmiris are integral part. So that's what is their official line so far. I remember when I
2: first came here in uh, 1966, the first time, and uh, I was surprised. People asked me, uh, did you come from India? Uh, Which highlighted to me something that I didn't know, that there's such a strong sense of Kashmiri identity.
0: Yes. Uh, we feel very different, we feel uh, that we, uh, because there have been attempts from India to integrate integrate us very violently with the Indian mainstream, and we have always refused to integrate, uh, whatever it may be. We, we, we like to watch Indian cinema, we like to listen to Indian music. But that's it. And we are always very reluctant people when it comes to integration from any side. I mean, it's not only India, even Pakistan, if Pakistan would want to, like, for example, uh, say that uh, Kashmiris and Pakistanis are the same because of Islam. We refuse. We refuse to say. We we believe very strongly in our uh, Kashmiri identity as well. We are Muslims. We are proud of being Muslims. But that's not who we only are. We are Muslims, but we are also Kashmiris. And, and we are very careful uh, in, in being uh, clubbed with Indian identity or uh, we, we every time refuse when I'm traveling outside. I mean, I have to carry an Indian passport, but whenever I'm asked where I'm from, I tell them I'm from Kashmir. I'm a Kashmiri national. So that's very uh, close to our hearts.
2: Uh, one of the issues that is often brought up to uh, discredit the resistance movement in Kashmir, is the treatment of Kashmiri pundits, that is Kashmiri Hindus who have uh, left uh, the state and have moved elsewhere. Uh, numbers of them were killed, uh, their homes, they lost their
0: homes. Yeah, uh, the Kashmiri pundit uh, minority, which left in 1990, this is a very, uh, very uh, important topic for the Indian government to every time use Against, it is a whip which is being used against the people of Kashmir. Uh, the number of Kashmiri pundits who have been killed uh, since 1989 till date, the official figures for them are around 209 people. And they call it a genocide. Of course, which is also condemnable and bad. These killings should not have happened at the first place at all. So you unequivocally
2: condemn yes, the killing are, of.
0: All killings of political activists, all killings of minority uh, groups, are, of course condemned and and we believe that uh, they should stop even now we condemn that but, they, but it would be wrong to say that anyone was killed here or majority was killed here or people were killed here for they were killed for religious affiliations people were killed here for political affiliations which is still bad but then the international campaign uh, the the the, the malafide campaign against kashmiris is that kashmiris were engaged in ethnic cleansing of Kashmiri Pandits and they carried a genocide against Kashmiri Pandits. They called the, the the murder of these 209 uh, people, which is very unfortunate and a very big plot on the the secular and pluralistic values which Kashmiris have been always professing. For us it's very bad, it's a blot. But then they were killed because they were, most of them, there, there, there might be some killings which of course were also communal but there are most number of people who were killed in the initial 90s who were killed for political reasons we have condemned them all along always uh, because we do not believe that civilian political workers can be killed even if they are working for our occupation they cannot be killed and they should their lives should be protected so there's there's no scope for communal killings of course in our uh, in our understanding and there's abhorrence here in our society today the society does not like killing of political activists also.
2: If you close your eyes for a moment, think what
0: an independent Kashmir would look like. I believe the the struggle for our group, people like us, would not end with the independence of Kashmir from India. I believe that our struggle would carry on because many other places also, human rights groups uh, have been fighting for truth and justice and not necessarily for territorial independence and other things. We believe that people who are fighting today, who are leading or spearheading the movement against India might turn out to be monsters tomorrow because they have been fighting monsters and it happens. We, we, we are trying our level best so that these people do not turn monsters tomorrow. They are not monsters. We don't want them to be monsters tomorrow. But uh, we are not sure. We 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 will have a tough time even after independence, making Kashmir a place, a better place, a place of justice, a place of nonviolence, a place which has no army, a place which has no weapons, a place which is uh, full of freedom and justice for its people, a place which does not, a nation which does not exploit its own people, like it is happening in many, many other countries. The states are created to 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 exploit the people in a more sophisticated way every state is sophisticatedly or unsophisticatedly exploiting its own people but crimes which have been perpetrated on the people of kashmir in each and every crime the perpetrators have to be punished there, there cannot be any other redressal there cannot be reconciliation based on forgiveness based on based on forgetfulness we believe Forgetfulness is; it would be another crime committed by Kashmiris on themselves if they forget what has happened to them by the Indian troops. We do not want our state to be an oppressor because it would be a nightmare for us if we replace the Indian rule by a bad Kashmir rule on Kashmiri people. It would be very unfortunate, and we don't want that to happen here in Kashmir. And that's why we are trying, striving hard to promote the values of international humanitarian law, to promote the values of uh, nonviolence, truth, justice, and democracy. And we are hopeful that Kashmir will be far more different and better than many other existing nations in the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
1: You were just listening to Khurram Pervez on Kashmir telling the story. I talked with him in Srinagar, Kashmir, in February 2011. Khuram Parvez, a noted human rights activist, has been imprisoned by the Modi regime since 2021. For more information about Kashmir, contact StandWithKashmir.org. That's StandWithKashmir. Dot ORG This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent nonprofit in our thirty seventh year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media such as Noam Chomsky, Medea Benjamin, Arundhati Roy, and Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website, where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Khurram Pervez on Kashmir, Telling the Story, and for Arundhati Roy's book, Azadi, just call us, one 800 444 that's one 800 444 Or order online our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free. Just call us, one 800 444 series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.